Welcome to Beyond the Lens, presented by Diesel Films. I am Seth Shapiro. And I'm AJ Speaks. Growing up in Los Angeles in the 1980s, basking in the glow of the Showtime Lakers in the golden era of LA sports, John Weinbach found himself glued to the LA Times, reading the likes of Jim Murray and Gene Wojciechowski. Then at Yale, under the watchful eye of his sports editor, baseball's boy wonder Theo Epstein, John flourished as a writer for the Yale Daily News. After a short stint with the Wall Street Journal, John then transitioned to producing a show for ESPN called The Life, which propelled him into a career of creating iconic sports programming. For the last nine years, he teamed up with legendary producer producer Mike Tolan under the banner Mandalay Sports and Entertainment. John explains why it was so important to him to tell the story of the 1992 Lithuania men's basketball team in a wonderful documentary titled The Other Dream Team. He shares what it was like to write a track for the legendary rapper Ice Cube for the ESPN 30 for 30 straight out of LA. And John tells us how they were able to get Michael Jordan to agree to participate in The Last Dance and how much influence Jordan really had. You will not want to miss a moment of this episode of Beyond the Lens presented by Diesel Films. An extra special show today, a man who is an absolute legend in the sports and entertainment space and an actual native Angelino, John Weinbach. John, welcome to Beyond the Lens. Thank you guys for having me. You're doing a great job with this. Appreciate it. And that's that's an intro, right, John? Seth brings you out. I love it. I love it. I love it. As I say to you guys, like, I just, I need a better backdrop. I cannot match Seth Shapiro's, like, absolute, you know, perfectly framed, and you got the Emmys glistening just so. It's great. It's great. It's great. (laughs) Your backdrop looks pretty nice, though. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm in the, I'm in our living room, and it, it, and because we have high ceilings, it makes it look much bigger than it really is, but, uh, but thank you. You were actually born in LA. Are you a Cedar Sinai baby, or tell me? So, it's funny. I'm actually, I guess, technically, I'm a native New Yorker because I was born in New York, Mount Sinai Hospital, for those scoring at home. Uh, we moved to LA when I was not even two years old. And I lived in New York too, so I guess I'm both, but I, I consider myself a native of Angelino. And there are those of us. We do exist. It's not everyone's just transplants. But um, yeah, I grew up in LA. I consider myself fortunate in a lot of ways, but the purposes of you know sports and sports media, I think LA in the 80s was the, with no disrespect to Boston of the last 15 years or whatever, I think LA in the 80s was the greatest time to be a sports fan in any city, anytime, in any era. Not just for the for the teams, but also for the culture, specifically, you know, for our discussion, like for the media, you had in one decade, you had five Laker championships, two Dodgers championships, the only Super Bowl that an LA team has ever won, the Raiders in 83. You had the birth of essentially X Games culture, surfing, skating, all that stuff. You had the 1984 Olympics, and you have the Kings getting Gretzky in 1988. All of that's happening. And oh, by the way, there was professional, a quasi-professional, sports franchises known as UCLA and USC. UCLA wins, I think, eight straight bowl games. USC has everyone from, you know, Junior Seau to Marcus Allen to uh, Anthony Munoz. I mean, legends, legends, legends of the game. And then on the media side, you know, I grew up listening to Chick Hearn, greatest basketball play-by-play, Vin Scully, greatest baseball play-by-play, Bob Miller, greatest hockey play-by-play, Dick Enberg on UCLA basketball. And on the newspaper side, I was like, uh, you know, a, a print media junkie when I was a little kid because my dad read the LA Times and we had a legendary sports section where you had, you know, Jim Murray was, a, you know, people who know print journalism. He was a legendary columnist, Mike Downey, Scott Osler, a lot of guys who then went on to be, you know, Gene Wojciechowski, who people might know from like college football reporting for ESPN. He was an LA Times reporter, Rick Riley, columnist, LA Times sports writer, you know, Bill Plasky. So, I mean, one of the great, you know, joys of this career is that getting to interview for docs and projects, 
all the guys that I grew up watching and listening. So um, that part I feel like is kismet or whatever, but it was, a you know, to be a kid and a big sports fan in LA in the 80s and early 90s was, you know, unbelievable. So you have all these experiences, you have all these teams in LA, but you choose to go to Yale. It's funny, I didn't know anything about Yale or where even it was. Um, it was not on my radar until I was, you know, thinking about schools. And actually, my brother's college, my older brother's college roommate said, You should apply to Yale. I mean, I was, you know, I had done well in, in high school. I did a lot of stuff, you know, school newspaper. I played high school soccer. I played baseball. I don't know the reason he thought that because I was like, I thought I would try to go to. Penn or Columbia, my, my aunt, you know, is my mom, both my parents grew up on the East Coast. My mom's uh, sister went to Barner, Columbia, I was a doctor there. I was like, you know, I, I visited Columbia when my brother was visiting schools. So I was like, oh my God, this is where I'd want to be. Uh, I don't know. I, I ended up visiting um, Harvard, Yale, uh, and Columbia. And I really thought I wanted to go to Penn because they had the best basketball team. And if I'm being totally honest, it was like, hey, there's a lot of cute Jewish girls who go to Penn. They got a good basketball team. And I knew that there was a good school newspaper, uh, the Daily Pennsylvanian. So I ended up, you know, getting in, <laughs> which I did not expect. And it was sort of like, hey, it's a pretty unique opportunity to go. So um, that's how. I knew I wanted to go on the East Coast. I think maybe because both my parents, my dad's from Rochester, New York, and my mom's from New York and Northern New Jersey. And I just grew up going to the east coast you know i grew up around ucla and i think i was just like i wanted to go on the east coast to go to school and i never liked stanford because they always beat ucla football and i mean it's the stupidest reason not to like that place because it's an unbelievable school an unbelievable location but from a pretty early age i knew i wanted to go to the east coast for for college going to school in new haven a far cry from the beaches of Santa Monica. <laughs> yes. I'm sure that Ivy League education was special. Coming out of Yale, what were the first things that you got into? Well, you know, I would say, you know, one of the great things that, uh, again, you know, fortunate and we meet the right people, right time and opportunity, but our little group of Yale sports dorks in college, I mean, you know, there was a group of us who were really into sports and did media stuff, whether it was the newspaper or the radio station, that group has gone on to do great things. I mean, including that group is Joe Persky, who's the, you know, talk about many Emmys. He's like, I think one more Emmys than anyone as the executive producer of Real Sports. And one of my dear friends, Teddy Werner, is, you know, president, executive vice president of the Milwaukee Brewers. Ezra Edelman was on our, Ezra Edelman should have, and Joe Persky should have been my sports editors on the college paper, but they decided to go abroad or not do it. Um, and, you know, Ezra's done a few things. Um, but I, you know, I... He's very um, elusive, Ezra. I have to say he's very elusive. He's very you elusive. can't find him. We'd love um, but, to have him on, though, so if he listens. <laughs> you know, growing up, I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated. That's really what I wanted to do. I, wa I knew I wanted to do something in the sports media space, whether that was writing, broadcasting. I, but I, I knew I didn't want to be like a beat reporter. Um, I just sensed that when I was – I used to go during later games, you know, and sneak around and, like, steal the press notes and watch these guys, like, try to bang out a story. And I was like, oh, I don't think I want to do that and, and travel around all the world. But um, I went – I interned during college back in the days, like, you know, when you actually had to like write <laughs> letters to get internships. I mean, I didn't have any connectivity really at all in the entertainment business or the sports media business. My, it's not like my parents or my grandfather or anything was in that world at all. And so I interned one summer 
at uh, in LA at Fox Sports in 1996 it was the first summer they had baseball and then I interned uh, my junior year at Major League Soccer the second year they had it and, and sort of just to get a sense of, hey working for a league working for a broadcaster and I ended up at the Wall Street Journal because another dear friend of ours a guy named Dan Rosenthal had been working uh, his his first cousin is Kenny Rosenthal the Fox you know baseball writer longtime writer for, for the Baltimore Sun Kenny had a friend at the Journal and Dan had interviewed there and Dan said, I bombed the interview. I'm going to law school, but you should have this job. And it's basically, you're going to like, they want a junior sort of sports and sports business reporter. The wall street journal is starting up a new section called weekend journal. It's going to have sort of lifestyle reporting. And you should just call these guys. Cause like you're more qualified than me. Like I'm not even a newspaper reporter. So basically that's what happened is I ended up sending my resume and a letter and more letters and emails and got an interview with the editors of the uh, Wall Street Journal new weekend journal section. This is like in the spring of 1998 and, you know, managed to get hired. And so a woman named Joanne Lippman, who is, you know, I, I discovered as sort of my, my journalism rabbi uh, and mentor. She was the editor of, of Weekend Journal and then, you know, became the managing editor of the Wall Street Journal. And so that's how I started. So I, I worked at the journal covering all sorts of different things. I did some sports business articles and I was the guy, I was the young guy who like knew how to use the internet. So I would like review websites um, and like knew how to order things online. So for like about six months, I became, they had a feature called Catalog Critic where we would order one item, Sisal rugs or, you know, messenger bags from like six different retailers. And I became the, you know, resident critic of like online shopping, which was like a big deal in 1998. So I was there till about late 2000 and then had a unique opportunity that a friend, a friend of a friend was launching a new series for ESPN. The elevator pitch was kind of ESPN, the magazine, the show. And it was based on a front of the magazine section of the magazine called The Life. Kind of an unheard of order, 32 episodes for ESPN. Um, and it was being done by a production company, very notable commercial production company in New York called Radical Media. They had done all of the like, this is Sports Center commercials that were so great. You know, the ESPN was like, oh, you guys know how to do production. You did all these commercials. Like, we'll give you an order to do 32 shows. Nobody had any idea what they were doing. <laughs> they had never done a show. And so I was, you know, a guy named Jamie Patrickoff, who is a dear friend to this day, um, was the executive producer at all of 24. I think we celebrated his 25th birthday the week before we launched. We were the same age. We had a friend in common and he kind of needed a journalism brain, a sports brain. Like, okay, we got this show. Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get to athletes? And like, what are we going to do with them? And so I, you know, decided to take that leap because I was like, you know, I think I, I, the journal was a wonderful experience in many ways, but it was sort of like, I knew a lot about the sports industry and I was sort of at a crossroads of like, do I want to go into the business side of sports? You know, maybe go to law school or work for a team. And I should ma mention, you know, one of the other guys at Yale that I came across, my sports editor, my freshman year of college was Theo Epstein. Epstein. I was going to bring that up. I was yeah. Waiting. yeah, yeah. And so, and he's, you know, Theo knew very, he knew his senior year of college. He wanted to work in baseball and you have to understand like that model did not exist. All of the guys of my exact contemporaries, plus or minus two years, you know, the idea of like an Ivy League educated non-player being an executive in sports, forget about baseball, was just unheard of. Um, really in any kind of meaningful way. He knew it. I mean, he he said to me, I'll never forget my senior high school or senior college. He goes, Weinbach, don't go into media. You'll be broke and bored by 50. Go work for a team. The bar is low. <laughs> 
so he knew he knew and so um anyway like i i was sort of this a little bit of a crossroads and i had this opportunity to kind of like you know i think you guys know and from doing the various podcasts you know there's an established way to work in kind of sports television and certainly in the live side you go work for abc or espn or whatever you work for a network sports division and you work your way up you're a pa and then this and that and the other thing and i was not coming from that way so this was a way to work create a new show without kind of doing some of that stuff and create something from the ground up which was super exciting and so we did 32 episodes episodes of of the life and you know with your brother and uh, craig spiro as one of the feature producers um, i remember and- when he, i remember him working on that show he did like a piece on chess yeah uh, Maurice and Ashley. A- oh, wow. <laughs> yeah wow. and then a, yeah it, it was i think that show was uh before it's time Oh, I mean, you know, we talk about it all the time. We actually had a 20-year reunion zoo during COVID. And I'm very proud of this. Is like our little show, which they ended up doing a second season, but not at Radical. And, you know, people went their different ways. It was past, after 9-11. But our first season show, as a, the diaspora from that show, is incredibly impressive. Our executive producer, Jamie Patrickoff, has now gone on to produce movies with, you know, Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe and Ben Affleck and all kinds of The Accountant and Place Beyond the Pines and Blue Valentine and Half Nelson and all sorts of stuff. Our music supervisor was Rich Kleiman, Kevin Durant's partner. One of our other producers, Matt Ogans, gone on to do great things as a director. Our lead editor, Mike Warren, gone on to do incredible things as a director and editor. Our junior, junior editor, I mean, she was like an AE and then, she, you know, worked her way up. Ting Poo, who just directed the Val Kilmer doc and won an Oscar for her short film, I think last year or the year before. And I know I'm forgetting, uh, you know, other folks, but- um, Connor you know, Shell, right? Oh, what am I talking about? Connor Shell was our broadcast associate. <laughs> I guess technically I was Connor's boss, but we just, you know, and, and so you have, President of a network, Kevin Durant's partner, incredibly successful producers, directors, award-winning uh, on a lot of things from one show. And, you know, I've been able to do some great things. So, And Radical, uh, you know, had, this was their first unscripted series, really. Maybe they did one or the thing, but they are now, if not the most, you know, prolific and, and award-winning sort of premium unscripted production company in the business. And, you know, won Academy Awards. So it was, it was really great and special experience. And so, you know, I think we kind of knew it at the time, but as I describe it, it was like a dot com energy for a television show and and you'll appreciate this said i think and, and aj because you know from the technical side this is how crazy it was radical had to deal with apple right where the apple was giving them gear and stuff like that in 2001 we did this show on final cut it was not final cut one or final cut two or final cut three it was final cut zero okay it did not have embedded time code it did not sync with pro tools so when we would have to do sound mixes, like there, it was like all eyeballing and hearing. We busted deadlines so many times to deliver the show to ESPN that on I got to know literally every FedEx station in lower Manhattan. And I figured out where was the latest drop off. And on at least one occasion, Connor did this too, we'd laugh about it, but I had access occasionally to my grandmother's car in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And I know I did it at least once. I drove a digi beta at like two in the morning from Hudson and Leroy at Radical Media to Bristol <laughs> to deliver it to Mission Control because nobody else could do it. Nobody else had a car. So I, you know, did that a couple of times and we laughed about it, but it was a really great experience and got to, you know, really cut my teeth. Also under the tutelage of two really wonderful producers who, who came on, which is, you know, Al Samansky, 
you know, uh, who, and, and, and Matt Morantz, who both, you know, great guys and, and did great work and, and were really wonderful to our little group of young people teaching us about, uh, you know, production and stuff. By the way, I just mentioned on the production side, on the technical side, we had all of the guys who would go on to create, let's call it the modern era of the sports doc. So Tom Stuckus, like probably the best TP, TP in the business, John Tipton, Adam Zaberski, Pete Franchella. I mean, these are like kind of real legendary names. And so it was a trial by fire because none of us knew what the hell we were doing, but it was a really great experience. So you mentioned all these names, which would be great guests for us on the pod. So we're going to get you to help us with that. The one you haven't mentioned, and I'm curious how he was influential in your career, is Mike Tolan. Who is he and what has he meant to you? Oh, well, I mean, a, a ton. I mean, you know, I was going to, obviously with Mike, I got to know Mike. Well, I, of course, admired and worked from afar because I watched you know, Arliss religiously, you know, every episode. In fact, Jamie Patrick and I laugh about it. I found when we, when I was moving a couple of years ago, a document that I did like an original story idea document for the life. And one of the segments was find the real life Rita Wu. Uh, Rita Wu was the character, a famous actress, uh, Sandra Oh, you know, who then obviously on Grey's Anatomy and everything. She played Arliss's assistant on Arliss. And it was like, can we find like Scott Boris's assistant? Like what's a day in the life of the real life Rita Wu? That's how big a fan of Arliss were, but I, I didn't really know Mike until the 30 for 30 series, uh, you know, came into play and, you know, sort of fast forwarding a bit. I moved back to LA, did some freelance production, ended up going back to the Wall Street Journal, worked there for three and a half years out of Los Angeles. And then Jamie called me and he, we had been in touch with Connor. We had heard about this 30 for 30 series, but like candidly, nobody knew what it meant. It was like, are these like 30 minute movies? Like what, what does that even mean? So, okay, they made the decision. This is the fall of 2008. And, you know, you know we've had these meetings with Connor, uh, 30 for 30. So Jamie said, look, I think that I can get Ice Cube to direct one of these films. They, they, and, and ESPN really wants to do it. But like, what should we do? So I said, well, if we got Cube, we got to do something about like the nexus between NWA and the Raiders and sort of the rise of gangster rap and hip hop and its connection with, with sports and particularly in LA and how it had this happy and unhappy relationship with the Raiders both while they were here and then sort of you know hastening their departure. So I wrote a treatment, you know, and like we got it to Connor and cube dug it and like off we went so in november of 2008 november december i mean this isn't a leave the journal and you know try to do this whole documentary thing and met with connor and mike tolan in la and you know you meet people and you, you just have a sense of like man I, I would really get along with this guy and obviously i do his track record you know unbelievable and arliss and and you know, Coach Carter, Varsity Blues, and all this stuff. And the way we actually connected was Mike was, as you may know, sort of the the Steve Sable of the USFL. He was the guy who ran the, the in-house sort of film and entertainment unit. And I, you know, being the LA sports geek and just general sports geek I had, I think I was wearing an LA Express shirt, which is a USFL team. And he made a comment about it and we sort of connected. And that was, he was just sort of there as ESPN's guy in Hollywood who was going to help put together the 30 for 30 series. And he was just sort of there as a resource. He obviously directed one of the first ones on the USFL. And that was the first time I met him. And then we kept in touch. I would call him with certain questions because, you know, I was totally new to producing a documentary. I'd done a lot of interviews and done lots of reporting and writing, but just sort of that process. And he was a resource and we had shown him cuts. And late in 2010, I was reporting again for AOL, trying to, you know, 
cobble together basically a living uh, covering sports business and sort of features for AOL and at the same time producing a film which ultimately became the other dream team and I remember I met with Mike and we showed him like maybe a little bit of a sizzle reel or kind of a, a clip reel we started talking about it when we were fortunate to be selected for uh, with the other dream team for the Sundance Film Festival I called Mike to share the news and he told me, well, that's it's so exciting, da 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 where, you know, one of the screening dines, I want to be there, et cetera, et cetera. And, oh, by the way, I think I'm going to be launching this new company with Peter Goober. He had mentioned this sort of in passing a whole year before. So I was like, Mike, you said that a year ago. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, but I think it's really going to happen. So I just, you know, said right then, and this is maybe November, October, November of 2011, I said, you know, look, if, if, if this happens, I'm raising my hand. Like, I'd really love to do that. And so when we then went to Sundance with the film, the other dream team screen there, it got a lot of, it got you know, some really nice acclaim. The day of, or the day after we had a nice review in The Hollywood Reporter, Mike called and he's like, Johnny Weibach, like, I'd like to, to talk to you about life with a capital L. And that meant obviously, you know, about joining forces and, and helping him build, you know, Mandalay Sports Media. And so that's that's this origin story. And that's where I've been, you know, I was for the last nine years. And Mike's been an, an enormous uh, force in my life and professionally, personally, and obviously, you know, navigating the waters of trying to make stuff, you know, and how to do it in a way that's not just good in terms of obviously the quality and the budget and all that stuff, but like treating people the right way. You know, so he's been an enormous influence because it's, you know, being an example of, you know, how, how to conduct business, you know, good and bad. Obviously, nothing's perfect on balance. Obviously, an incredible, incredible experience working with him. We like to ask this of legends. What's the one thing you've taken from Mike Tolan that's helped you the most throughout your career? I mean, I think transparency and sometimes maybe even to a fault, like just being really honest about like, hey, this is where we are with the project. And no surprises. I mean, this is something that I would talk about with Mike. I mean, look, I'm also something because I I think because I was um, my background in journalism and, you know, when you know doing an article with the Wall Street Journal and I wasn't like covering AT&T, you know, I wasn't a beat reporter covering a big publicly traded company. But even when we do features and I did some pretty investigative stuff, the rule of thumb was no surprises. So if you're going to accuse Seth Shapiro of X, Y and Z or AJ Speaks of X, Y and Z and you got five anecdotes to back up your thing whatever it is, you still have to give them an opportunity to comment. They can't just read about it for the first time in the Wall Street Journal. And so that's the thing is like no surprises. And so it's really it's a certain bit of being available, being respectful. You'd rather have 50% of something than 100% of nothing. So, you know, being very collaborative. I think also it's so hard. Every project is almost like a little miracle if you get it on the air. You know, there's like all the work just to get it sold, right? And then, then oh, Oh, yeah. Now we got it sold. Now we got to make it. Now we got to make it good. Right. And then all of those things can line up. You sell it. You make it good. And, you know, nothing happens. Whatever. It's not received well for what it's not promoted. It doesn't land, whatever. But you can really only judge the value of the project by its ability to get to another project. And so that can be measured a lot of different ways, right? Sometimes it's just like, hey, the project was so successful, it gets you another project, right? You know, maybe the project didn't go successfully, but you met someone that's really good and that gives you uh, relationship capital and that, you know, leads to other things or you discover something on the way of doing that project that leads to other things. So obviously everybody wants everything to go well, right? But sometimes it's out of your control, but 
what you can control is like how what you take from it and and trying to find something that you know hey there's a nugget of something from there that you can le learn from or you that leads to another thing i know that's a lot and that's kind of general but you know it's not like i can say all oh, these five things these five principles that you know i learned i just think it's a general way of treating people doing business because you know our world is small you know, especially in the, I mean, obviously the entertainment business is large, but like the sports universe is, you know, subsect of that. And then sort of like call it premium unscripted doc and even scripted space is pretty small. It just has a big impact on people. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, it's, it's a relatively small community. Sounds like it's more about the journey than the destination. Yeah. And also I got to say is like, you know, a certain point of knowing uh, you know, one of the things that we often talk about is like, you know, when is it enough? If anything, maybe we're guilty of, we're guilty of, there's some things you hold on too long, you know, but then again, other projects have been, you know, 10 years. So, you know, you never know, but I think you, following up and being respectful and responsible about the process is a big one. Yeah, I'm a big believer in transparency too. I'm going to transition to our second act where, to be honest with you, I was not familiar with your documentary, The Other Dream Team. And I don't know how I wasn't because it was phenomenally, it was really well done. It was just a great story. How did you get involved in that documentary? Oh yeah, I mean, it, it, thank you. Uh, I, I agree. <laughs> the long short story is my good friend's brother-in-law, okay, was, grew up with a, was a guy named Noah. He grew up with a guy named Marius Markavicius. Marius grew up in LA, we're the same age. He went to Samo High, I went to Santa Monica High School, I went to Beverly Hills High. Uh, Marius and Noah went to college together. We're at, I think, a two-year-old or three-year-old birthday party in Roxbury Park in L.A. And I had just completed uh, the first 30 for 30 I did uh, straight out of L.A. And Noah, and I, Noah worked in TV, and he said, hey, you know, love the film, da da da, da. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but, like, the Lithuanian basketball team. And I was like, oh, yeah. You mean, like, the guy, Sharunas Marcellotis, Arvidas Sabonis, like, got sponsored by the dead. And he's like, yeah, how do you know that? <laughs> I was like, well, um, I'm a massive, massive, I would say I'm a sports, one percenter of sports geekery across the board. But like when it comes to really, really, it's like basketball, soccer, baseball, I'm, you know, fanatical, particularly on basketball and particularly international basketball. And I think that, you know, going back, I think it's partly because, you know, I went to the 84 Olympics and I always had a, you know, was looking at it. And um, so I was familiar with that story. And I, and, and I remember like that summer in 92, like, kind of being more intrigued and i remember we didn't even get to see the games except for the time they blew out lithuania the u.s blew out Lithuania. but you know in those days they didn't televise every olympic game but i remember reading about the grateful dead and like sharunas and it's good and i only knew kind of that you know i didn't know the whole story and so i was like sure and so noah said hey can you just meet with marius like he went to usually film school but he doesn't know anything about how to make a knock or he you know would love your guidance so we literally like the next week Marius and I met in uh, at Library Ale House on Main Street in in Santa Monica, and we sort of, you know, hit it off. Realized we had all these people in common, a lot of common interests, and you know, just decided to like, hey, let's try to do this. Like, you know, we, we had put together a treatment, and we just sort of went off and did it. And it was, and the more I got into it, it was like, I this is a really really great story. Look, I was a history major in college. I Yes, I do work in sports, but I have a lot of interest outside of it, and particularly in history and politics. And, you know, I'm technically a first-generation American. My parents were born outside the United States. You know, my grandparents on one side were Holocaust survivors, and my grandparents on the other side were refugees, Austria, and then 
Russia, who lived in China, and so kind of got a really interesting family international history. So I kind of sparked to these types of stories. And so we just went off and started shooting. I called in basically every favor I could, got the guys who, a lot of guys, the guys who had shot on the Raiders dock to, you know, they came down to San Diego and shot Jim Lampley and Alex Van Wagner, who, by the way, now the DP of like The Voice, you know, has done great things. We did, I think we were at 1.5 for five in our interviews with getting every interviewee cried. And it was like, holy shit, like this is a pretty significant story. Because I was working for AOL at the time, I was able to kind of moonlight and use, let's say, a press credential to get into the NBA All-Star game. And man, maybe I used that to be able to interview people. <laughs> you know what, we can get a camera, like just in the corner here of the Hilton, and we shot Donnie Nelson at the restaurant at the Four Seasons, and we you know, paid a guy 25 bucks just to be quiet. And uh, I hooked up my crook, and then we, we sort of you know, made four or five different trips to Lithuania. And, you know, eventually Sharunas and Arvidas came together and formed a foundation, an entity to sort of raise money for the project. And, you know, if I told you how much we made it for, it's a joke. And we just did it over a period of a couple of years. And then, uh, I mean, there's a lot of great stories, including finding archival footage. It's a long, crazy story. The Soviet film archive, was actually meticulously organized. But then things went awry. And then when they, in the early 90s, Lithuania, because it was a new state, really wanted to catalog its history. So they had taken actually a very good job of organizing all these old Soviet newsreels. You had it from 1939. Like, I'm like, where did you get this footage? So so, so the Lithuanian state film archives are actually listed on another website. And I figured out the Lithuanian word for basketball, which is krapšinis. K-R-A-P-S-I-N-I-S. Because I wasn't getting any results searching for basketball. And then I started searching for Krapšinis. And then like the mother load came down with all these newsreels. I literally printed out like, they were like 40 newsreels. And these are like from 1979, 80, 81, 82, all the way to 88. We go to Lithuania and the archivist, there's no system. <laughs> like they're just, they're going into a back thing. They grab these reels. So then he grabs all the reels and then he says, not possible. I said, what, what do you mean it's not possible? Those are the reels and not possible. I was actually there, not with Marius, who speaks Lithuanian, uh, English Lithuania. We were there with a local producer that we used. And, and he said, John, leave the room. So like, he, he comes back and goes, do you have like 50 bucks? I said, like 50 litas? He's like, no, do you have 50 American dollars? And actually all I had was like a hundred dollar bill. So I gave him a hundred bucks. Suddenly it was possible, right? <laughs> and, and, we're, and we're watching in the screening room and it's film unbelievable pristine film and there's no time counter there's no time code no embedded time code and they just said okay you watch and i just watched and the sort of uh corrupt film archivist ends up watching with me and he says to the local producer i have never seen this so it was like oh you know if you're working in documentary this is like the greatest, right? You would have gave him a million dollars. You would have gave him a million dollars. So we they had all this incredible footage of the Soviet era time. And so these guys were the faces of the what always appealed to me the way I described it is these guys were the faces of the Soviet sports machine, right? The ultimate bad guys, right? From an American perspective. But in fact, they were reluctant because they were Lithuanian and they were sort of, you know, that was the last republic taken into the Soviet Union, the first to declare its independence. So when they had that chance to play in their own you know, uniform and their own colors. It was a very meaningful thing. And so that journey, you know, from like, think about, think about now where we are, where guys get drafted at 18, you know, DeMontis Sabonis went to Gonzaga and was an all American, 
his father was drafted in the first round and was not allowed to play. So it's a pretty remarkable arc. Anyway, that's 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 kind of the, the some of the scoop on that. Now, when you got started, did Marius have a connection to Arvidas Sabonis or Sharunas Marshallonis? How did he know that he was going to be able to tell the story? Well, so it's interesting. You know, he didn't have a connection to those guys specifically, but his parents had moved in after the war, after World War II, and his father had been quite active in the Lithuanian independence movement in the early 90s, you know, certainly from supporting it from the United States. So he was connected in that way to some of the political leadership in Lithuania, including the prime minister and the president of, of Lithuania during at that time in the early 90s. So that helped us. I think it also helped candidly that he was an American Lithuanian because they had done some kind of, frankly, not that great stuff locally about that team. But it was sort of like, he was an American and I was his partner and I had been, I'd done a 30 for 30. And that was sort of like, you know, Sharunis who lives, you know, half the year in the United States or certainly did at the time. He understood that. And we got vetted a little bit. Um, you know, he would call uh, some of his contacts. In fact, three of the guys in the film, uh, well, now Donnie Nelson is no longer with the Mavericks, but Donnie Nelson is president of the Mavericks. Arturis Karnishevis, who we interviewed, who was on the 92 team. He's the president or GM of the Bulls. Tommy Shepard. Who we who's great character, a great guy, is the GM of the Washington Wizards. And so we, you know, they were all part of the film. And so it engendered a lot of goodwill. That was such a great shot with Shepard sitting there filming uh Valentunas. I'm like, how did yeah. you get that? And then seeing Valentunas so young, why was it important for you to add Valentunas to the story? In part because Marius had, had had the experience the year before of having a narrative film at Sundance that had actually won the grand jury prize called Like Crazy and, you know, was connected a little bit to some of the programmers there. And, you know, I knew that all of things being equal, it'd be nice to have some kind of current day verite in the moment storyline. Could we identify, you know, something that would connect this historical story and to today? This was just a real stroke of luck that year there were two Lithuanian players who were going to be top first-round picks. And we shot with both of them. Jonas Valanciunas and, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. He was drafted by the Rockets. He was actually the higher-touted rookie. He didn't end up going to the draft. But we ended up shooting with Valanciunas in part because he did better at the, at the Euro Combine. And also his mother was such a great character. Again, couldn't scripted. The other element of Valentinus is he was born in 1992. So it was like all of these reasons we, we ended up going with him and, and he ended up being drafted quite high. We sort of did it for a creative reason um, to have this element that would make it just not just pure history. And then it was a stroke of luck that his mom ended up being this really lovable character and Valentinus would be in the United States at one point. So we, when he was there for the 2011 draft, we ended up shooting him there. You're telling such an important story of the Lithuanian revolution through the lens of this basketball team. How much pressure did you feel when you got deep into production that you had to make something great because you literally, it felt like you had the country of Lithuania on your back in that film? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly felt it. I know Marius did because it was a real awakening for him. I mean, a kind of a cultural awakening. He obviously grew up American, grew up in LA. And I think... You know, he, even, he would even say so now, you know, almost a little bit reluctant to sort of fly his Lithuanian-ness. And I think this was a real thing for him of like reconnecting with his roots. And for me, it felt like, again, sort of as this student of history, I, I had a real responsibility. This was like, to me, you know, one of the best, if not the best kind of 
Cold War sports story, certainly Cold War basketball story. I mean, I, I, I talk about this a lot with, you know, I'm sure you guys know Dion Kokoros, who's, you know, the executive producer of NBA Entertainment. A, an incredible guy. B, incredibly helpful with this project. And he was obviously, and Mike Talasian, who was on this podcast, did Once Brothers. And I sort of say Once Brothers was the unhappy story basketball story about the end of the cold war and how it shattered a country and this was sort of the happy story of how it unified a country through basketball i felt a lot of responsibility also because this was really ours i mean that's why i'm very proud of it to this day i mean there was no celebrity ep there was no network there was nothing there was like me and Marius and our, you know, a small and Dan Marks, who who is, you know, in my best estimation, the, the best editor in the business, a great filmmaker. And uh, he was, I begged him and begged him and begged him to edit this. And he finally relented and we cut it in like six weeks of pretty much nonstop all nighters. And so, you know, and, and some of the camera guys uh, who I love and work with to this day. And so it was really an independent production and so that part of it is very gratifying donatus monahunis is the, is the name we were trying to demand monahunis thank you guys <laughs> monahunis yeah so and by the way monahunis was a great personality he had lots he was funny he was playing in italy we shot with him and it was one of the best trips ever <laughs> we went to, to treviso italy and he was great and he just kind of got cold feet right at the end i mean we were literally hey look We'll shoot both of them. We'll shoot with Valentinus and Matiunas. And for many months, Matiunas was like, oh, top five pick, top five pick, top five pick. And he kind of crapped out. And at just not, not, I mean, he had a, he got drafted, but he, he ended up not being a lottery pick. And so he didn't come to New York. And so once he wasn't coming to New York and Valentinus was, we're like, ah, we'll shoot with Jonas. As a storyteller, and you, you already knew partially about the Grateful Dead, but for me, that's when the story got happy. Like, I felt like you had to tell the history and you did that. Then you dove in and you made it happy and you told this story about the Grateful Dead and their connection. As a reporter and a storyteller, did that help you frame that? Like walk me through that whole process. It was a challenge, you know, because to your point, there's a lot to get through, right? It's like any, every project, like how do we start? And, you know, this one, it's like, hey, nobody's even heard of Lithuania. Like, how do you, how do you tell the story of history? They were in the Soviet Union, they were out of the Soviet Union, they were in the Soviet Union. And so that was a lot to get through. And we, you know, made a decision very early on not to use a narrator. And we had all this business to take care of up till 92. We knew 92 was the easy part. It was like, hey, that last act's going to be this great ride. You know, and so that part we kind of always were banking on. And like, it should be noted how awesome the dead were, <laughs> like in this process, like they couldn't have been cooler. Like we interviewed Mickey Hart. We were almost going to interview Bob Weir, but schedules got crossed. And, you know, Bill Walton, who is probably in my top five favorite humans of all, of all <laughs> you know, on the planet, who was, you know, to this day is wonderful to me and to the project and like, you know, Every time there's a Lithuanian player on a Pac-12 broadcast, he'll find a way and be like, he's from Lithuania. Have you seen the other dream team? It's a great film. And he's just the best. I love that man. Um, no, I think we knew that we had great stuff with the dead. And it was just, how do we get there? And then once we got there, it was sort of, it wrote itself. That's the part we'd always use to sell the project because it's, you know, what? The Lithuania, the Grateful Dead, like what? You know, it, to this day, it's like, it's totally absurd. <laughs> um, and that's kind of what's great about it is the absurdity and like that moment in time, right? When like that era is ending and all these new connections can be made where like a former Soviet country is linking up with like the ultimate, you know, psychedelic American rock band. So it was awesome. 
It's funny because I worked the Olympics this past year and before working the Olympics, I never cared much about the bronze medal game. Like it was one of those games. I'm like, why are they playing the bronze medal game? But when you, when I saw this year, the French women team and the Australian men's team and how much it meant to them, it was just like, wow. So watching this doc and seeing that bronze medal game and how they're playing the former Soviet Union and what it meant to those guys, that was just unbelievable to me and it's just completely changed my whole viewpoint on the bronze medal and what that means to play for your country well that's the whole point right what it means to play for your country right and so like you know for better or worse in our country we're raised it's like gold or bust you know any especially in basketball you know i mean i'm directing a film on the redeemed in the 2008 usa basketball team right kobe and lebron and coach k and all these guys you know why was it called the man d wade i can't let you d wade d wade is our executive producer he is i mean it's incredible his he's a big part of the film. You'll love the film. But the, the, the thing is, is that why was it the redeemed team? Because we had lost basically, you know, three straight international competition in sort of increasingly embarrassing form. You know, in the United States with men's basketball, it's gold or it's failure. Whereas for these guys, you know, we often said, you know, bronze, their bronze was sweeter than gold because like it was for them. It wasn't for Moscow. It wasn't for, you know, some other thing. And so I'm also very partial to the Olympics, you know, because I, maybe because I grew up with it and I just... I know, somehow always had a special place. Been very fortunate to do, you know, it'll be ultimately, you know, nine or ten films for the, with the IOC as part of this Five Rings Films series. The Redeem Team is going to be part of that. Um, you know, we'll be I'll have more to say about that soon, hopefully, in terms of where it's going to be airing. But um, yeah, I mean, th those are those great moments where you realize, like, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but it's it's true. Like the power of sport to change lives um, is, you know, when it when it happens, it's magical. I love President Landsbergis in the film he was a fantastic character what was your favorite or most memorable moment being in lithuania in lithuania wow there are a lot um the landsbergis interview was great um because we shot that literally in front of if you i mean you guys freshly watched it so it's so great to you guys know the specifics but like where they had the big tank where they had a big uh kind of like their washington monument kind of thing a big plaza and we shot it right in front of there and they've and they've right. maintained the graffiti that was there uh, from the Soviet era. Yeah, it seemed so casual. He was just outside. Yeah, yeah. But he, he was, was relaxed. Great. Yeah, I had a, there were a lot of great interviews. Look, the interview with, uh, I mean, in, in, within Lithuania, one of my favorite is the guy, Valdemaras Hamashis, who was the smuggler, uh, the guy who would go in and, you know, he would when they were playing as the Soviet Union, they would literally, half the time, they would spend smuggling like blue jeans and computers and whatever, trading vodka and caviar. And he was great. And I'm nowhere close to fluent in, in Lithuania, but I could understand certain things. And so he would, you know, he would light up when he would talk about it. Um, but there was a sadness to it because it was like, it was absurd, right? These guys were the equivalent of, you know, first line A-list professional athletes making $100 a month. On the one hand, had this really unique opportunity, right? Like unlike most Soviets, citizens, they could travel the world and they got to see it, but in a way that made it worse, right? Because they could touch it, but they couldn't touch it. They had a, a, a hard bitten kind of absurdist sense of humor about it. And that, that was really cool. I mean, we were able to do some great interviews, Bill Walton, David Stern, David Remnick. David Remnick was a really, really great interview. It was kind of a, again, like, personal life dream, you know, interviewing David Remnick, who's the, you know, the editor of The New Yorker, but, you know, won a Pulitzer Prize covering the fall of the Soviet Union for the Washington Post. So um, that was awesome. We really wanted to cover this doc because it was so well done and it was just our featured doc. Now, you mentioned the 30 for 30 you did on L.A., so we just want to hit that a little bit real quick for with you and just talk about 
how that documentary came about and what it was like to work with Ice Cube. Oh yeah, so the Straight, Straight Outta LA was exactly as I mentioned. I mean, it was really like you know they were launching this series. I think they were kind of they had a few ideas in the hopper. They had a few productions that were going like Once Brothers and the U and Mike Tolan's dot you know uh, about the U.S. Small Potatoes about the USFL and the Gretzky one with Pete Berg. It was really that simple. It was like okay, we could get Q. What should we do with them? So I said, hey, we maybe about the you know the, the connection between there was this moment in time when like. You know, the Raiders were in L.A., they won a Super Bowl, and it be, they became both identified and vilified for this connection with, you know, gangster rap. And, and not just any, but it was N.W.A. And that was my, my childhood in high school. Like, I mean, I was in high school in the early 90s when kids got, like, jacked for wearing, like, a Raiders parka. That was real, you know, and, and in a weird way, wearing Raiders gear was actually not gang affiliated, but it also was. And, you know, it was this mashup and it became part of the reason. I mean, the, the fact that the Raiders were not that good was a big reason for several years. But the whole kind of gang, gangster rap, you know, sort of element both promoted the Raiders, right? It made them this cultural institution beyond LA and beyond the NFL even. But it also hurt them in LA because it became this thing of like, you know, you could, you, you know, it's really dangerous to go to the Coliseum and, you know, those people. And it was not, it was not even that coded a language. It was like, you know, gangs and, and that, that thing could be part of their experience going to the Raiders. People didn't want to do that. And in fact, you know, the NFL stopped doing Monday night football games at the Coliseum, you know, that was, that was how it came together. And Cube was fantastic. You know, I mean, he was professional. He was, you know, when we, you know, we needed him, he was there. It, it was a, kind of a wonderful collaboration. Obviously, you know, uh, we, he was not in the edit every day, but he would look at stuff and give notes. And we ended up you know, using this animation element, you know, which uh, we used uh, James Blagden and, and Chris Eisenberg, the guys who did, you know, James the animator, Chris, the producer of the, you know, greatest, sports animation project in history, in my opinion, the, the Doc Ellis acid uh, no-hitter. And I saw that and I was like, "We, might, I have to use that. I don't know what we're doing, we're gonna use them. And so we ended up using them as the way to kind of be the voice of Cube. And I remember when we showed it to Cube the first time and he was a little bit like, are they making fun of me? You know, like, cause he saw it out of context. And then when we showed it to him, I remember thinking, oh God, we just pissed off Cube and all this stuff. And he wasn't pissed. He was just like, I don't know how it's gonna play. Right. It, it feels like, you know, it might be making fun of me or whatever. And so then we played it for him and he was like, he loved it. And great, like life memory was I had written some VO, you know, voiceover for, for, for Cube to say, and I tried to channel, you know, his voice, and, you know, I, I, right. But I, you know, I never written Q lyrics for Cube. And then we went to record VO. He was like, who wrote this? <laughs> I was like, oh God. Uh, <laughs> I said, I did. And he's like, you got my voice. And I was like, I can, I can, I can like, you know, dying in peace now, which is pretty awesome. Um, he was great. You know, we got to, we shot with Cube and Snoop at the Coliseum. Like, my God, it was a dream come true. We've talked about this on previous podcasts, but when 30 for 30 was started, the whole theme was bringing in celebrity directors, Barry Levinson, Ice Cube, John Singletary, and it was sort of the anti-HBO sports formula for documentaries. Was there any sense of that getting started with 30 for 30. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, just by virtue of the fact that everyone would be different. I mean, it's sort of those, you know, those of us in the community, it's always funny because you go to people outside of ESPN or outside of, even just outside of ESPN, even in sports, like love the 30 for 30s. And there's this sense that there's like a 30 for 30, like there's some, you know, uniform style. And in fact, that's the whole thing. There is none, everyone yeah. is different. 
And I think what's what's nice is it's just become a catch-all term for quality sports filmmaking, right? It's a 30 for 30 kind of thing, right? So that means it's good. Basically means it's code for it's good and it's probably about sports and it's probably not just about the games, right? That's an incredible thing when you think about a year before that, there was nothing. You know, it was just it was just HBO. And not to say that those HBO docs weren't good. I mean, they were, but they were the only game in town. They were all done the same. Again, they were done well. Um, and it's just that, you know, there was this sense that they had, they were the only place that would sort of do them. And, and I think, um, the fact that it, once ESPN did it and they were good, that helped and that, I mean, helped a lot. And so that, that created this momentum or this sort of brand known as 30 for 30. But yeah, I, I think, you know, just, I can only speak for our, the ones I've done. And it was always like, Hey, we like what they've done over there. We like, you know, and that doc and that doc. It'd be nice to maybe do this, and then you kind of figure out kind of how to spin it your own way. But it was very much like we don't want it to feel like a, an HBO doc, not because that was bad, but that was just sort of let's call it the older, the established way of doing it. And like, hey, you know, we're not doing it for HBO. We got a chance to kind of do it our own way. And so for me, you know, the big, the two, I would say, you know, you're not, you didn't ask for this, but I'll just tell you in terms of like influences or things that made me want to do it. There's two projects in particular. One is Dogtown and Z Boys. Um, by directed by Stacy Peralta about like basically the birth of modern skateboarding culture, and then One Day in September, uh, which was the Kevin McDonald, you know, Oscar winning doc about the Munich tragedy in 1972 Olympics. And that one actually is, is a fairly traditional done doc, you know, with with voiceover. Actually, both of them have voiceover. Sean Penn is the voiceover for in Dogtown and and Michael Douglas. But I watched. I remember b- watching both of those and just saying, I need to be in this kind of storytelling. Like that is like the music and the editing and like you can tell something of substance. I got to do that, you know? And, and so that's sort of what, what got me into it. Walk us into the interview process between Al Davis and Ice Cube. Oh, sorry. So that was, you know, you mentioned about Cube. Real highlight was when we interviewed Al uh, Davis. And I believe it was his last interview before he passed away. I'm pretty sure. I mean, he obviously looked really bad. Um, he was not in good health, but he was, you know, Al Davis. And so if you probably freeze frame the interview, I'm sitting right behind the cube and I had prepared a list of questions for him. And he was so, and this is what, what's so great. I mean, he's ice cube, right? He's like, he's now he's done many things in his career. He hadn't done a lot of interviewing, but he was so cool and honest and just like collaborative um, it was so inspiring in a way because, you know, he could have been, you know, I got this kid, you know, and he wasn't that way at all. You know, he pushed out. He, he, and then he turned to me at one point. He's like, you know, I think we got the goods, right? I think we got it. You want me to keep pushing? And I was like, keep going. And he did. And he turned to me at one point. He goes, you know, Weinbach, you got anything else? All right. There you go. He said, Weinbach. He said, you got anything else? And <laughs> I said, uh, I, I like the back. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if he. Remember, <laughs> he might remember my face. I think, but um, the um, I remember asking Al about like what would you say to the fans of LA who feel like you left them, the Raider fans in LA who feel like you left them in the lurch, and that's a good question. <laughs> and so that was, I think, the last line of the movie was like, you know, you tell those fans they want us back. We'll come back or something to that effect. And to this day, I sort of wish the Raiders had moved back. Like, I wish it was the Rams. And I grew up a Rams and a Raider fan. It would have been great. But that interview was great. We, we waited a long time. We said it was shot in the headquarters in Oakland, right by the airport there. And we had that interview set up for 
hours. Yeah, I, I had it written down if that was that his last interview because I he did look pretty so. old. Well, and he obviously had had all these kind of skin things and and he had skin cancer. He was in you know he was deteriorating physically, mentally. He was sharp as a tack, <laughs> sharp, 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 and like he was you know Al's Al. And he no, he wasn't being politic about anything and like or put you know he went there. Yeah. Um, and so he, that was great for a while. We didn't know if we were going to be able to interview. And he, I think having cube make the ask was obviously huge. It was funny because I had heard that the only way that SoFi stadium now in Englewood could be built is if two teams played there. And because obviously I don't think the chargers, you know, should be in Los Angeles. They should be in San Diego. But then when Al said that in his interview, they wanted me to have two teams play in my stadium. I was like, holy shit, I didn't realize that. The history, that goes already back. the history goes back yeah. to having two teams in LA. Yeah. It, very very and, interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, the crazy thing is that they had so many opportunities at various points and the Raiders look, I think they're going to do, they're going to do great in Vegas. You know, they, good for it. They landed in a, in a great spot. I just think the reality is, is that, you know, and I've read a lot of the things about with the Rams and the stadium is that I think the Rams were afraid that if they share a stadium with the Raiders, Raiders going to draw better. You know, and they and 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 Stan Kroenke's putting up the money for the stadium. He doesn't want a tenant who's <laughs> going to be outshining them. But at the same time, I just think I agree with you. I just think I don't have anything against the Chargers. They should be in San Diego, or they should be in their own market. And without a doubt, you know, they should. They they're never going to eclipse the Rams because there's still enough people exactly my age or in their forties or late thirties who maybe some memory of the Rams that are going to be more loyal to the Rams than the Chargers. The only thing that could change it, and also the the Rams got got good. It's not like the Chargers have been bad, but they've been sort of just whatever, forgettable. If the Chargers had arrived here and immediately won a Super Bowl, which is what the Raiders did, that's what the Raiders did. They won a Super Bowl in their second season. In the first season, they went to the playoffs. And the Rams, remember, had moved to Orange County, so they were kind of an afterthought in L.A. And so had the Chargers been able to do that, maybe they could have reclaimed something, but never going to eclipse I did want to ask... I felt like when I watched the film, it felt a little abbreviated. You had so many different elements in the film. Whose decision was it to cut it down? And I felt like you could have went a lot longer with it. Oh, you mean the straight out of LA? You know, it's interesting. Straight out of I, watched, LA. I watched certain parts of that and I cringe because it's my first, you know, real feature late doc. And I would have done things differently. And, you know, in those days, uh, it was a 50 minute project, you know, like there was no five episodes 10 hours at, at you know 30 for 30 they were all 50 minutes i mean a few maybe have been longer than that but i think if you look back on season one most of them were an hour and yeah. so we really didn't i mean also look in candor the story was kind of thin in certain ways i mean there was a connection between the team i think there was a cultural story to be told there but look you're only talking about 13 years and they were really only good for one of them and there wasn't that much organic connection between nwa and the raiders it was really association you know by fashion you know and by music for some people may have buried the lead because you did produce the last dance and i know several people took a took a run at trying to get that that doc and do that story I know that you created a lookbook for that. For some of our listeners, let them know what that is and how you were able to get that documentary. Oh, how long you got? Well, it was a long story. Yes, I mean, the, the project, you know, we were talking about ESPN The Life. One of the shooters on The Life asked me at one point, hey, like, are you aware, and this is in 2001, are you aware of like, you know, we shot all this footage of Jordan's last season. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, yeah, we shot all this incredible footage, you know, film 
uh, from the 97-98 season. You know, I went in one ear, one out. Okay, great. Yeah. Over time, I had heard about this kind of holy grail project. And, you know, to your point, yes, there had been an effort. I know Frank Marshall tried to produce it. There was an effort by the NBA to do it. In fact, they there was a cut done, I think about an hour or hour and a half long film that Spike Lee was sort of involved with. And I want to say John Cusack was the narrator on. And it didn't come out for a variety of reasons, I think mostly because, you know, this would have been maybe in uh, mid-2000s. You know, Michael had just purchased the Charlotte franchise, and so, you know, it just wasn't right time. The small world of it is a guy named Ron Yassin, who used to work with us at MSM, uh, had gone on an African safari with uh, Esty Portnoy, who is Michael's gatekeeper and representative and all, you know, all things Michael go through Esty. Ron came back, I think it was Christmas break 2014-15, and then said, oh, you know, I ran an ST Portland, and I think, you know, maybe there's something for us to be done there. So we went about sort of setting up a meeting with SD and Curtis Polk, who is also, you know, Michael's partner. And we met in New Orleans at the All-Star Game. Or maybe it was Toronto that year. I can't remember. I think it was Toronto. It was the really freezing All-Star Game. We set tone, hey, you know, we'd like to maybe do this. And at the time... I might be getting my years off here, but I, I can't quite remember when the OJ series came out. It was 2015 or 2016. But in that year, obviously, the OJ series came out after that initial meeting. And it was like, oh, there might be a place to do like a really ambitious project. And so then um, I believe the next year was at the All-Star Game in New Orleans and we met with SD, I met with Curtis, and there were a lot of phone calls in between. And it was sort of like, could you guys put together, we wanted to take, the next step was like, okay, we can meet with Michael, but we, what are we going to present to him? So we, and it's basically me and Jonathan Vogler and Mike Tolan put together a lookbook, essentially a presentation book, outlining and presenting a kind of creative vision and visual style. And also, hey, here's how we envision this thing. It's going to be six episodes, eight episodes, 10 episodes, and here are bullet points for each thing. You know, I think the coup de grace was Mike did a kind of uh, letter to Michael. Michael, Mike Tolan wrote this and we put it, we printed it on the book. It was really like a spiral bound, like lookbook and wrote a note to Michael. And, you know, the sum and substance of it was, you know, every day, every month, every year that we had been in MSM, we had college interns, right? All of them know Air Jordan, but they know... Michael Jordan as like a brand. They know him as a shoe brand. They don't know, like to them, LeBron's by far the best player ever. Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, these are the best players ever, without question. And yeah, maybe Jordan was good in the same way that like, maybe when we were growing up, people like, oh, forget about magic. Wilt was the best, you know? And and we would see these dusty brown, black and white highlights. Well, you're now 20 years on, right? Not quite. When we started this, it was 2015, but it was like 2016 when the meeting with Michael was arranged. And so it was very short notice. Mike went to, Mike Tolan went to Charlotte. He presented the book. Mike liked it and you know one of the things we always joke about is we had our page of sort of credits you know the other dream team was on there and uh, you know coach carter varsity blues smallville all the things that mike's done and we had had a role in the iverson documentary on showtime michael jordan like sort of lingers on that picture and talking about the the, the uh iverson doc and mike has a funny story about this he's like oh god maybe he hates iverson maybe he hated that <laughs> michael jordan says love that guy love that film made me cry something to that effect. And so it was like, that was a pretty good meeting. That was in 2016, if you can imagine. And the, the idea with the series was it'll come out in time for the 20th reunion, 20th anniversary of the 98 season. So we were thinking it was going to be coming out in, in 2018. It took a whole other year 
to make the deal with ESPN and Netflix and the NBA and, you know, very unusual kind of deal. It's a very unusual project. And, um, you know, we brought on Jason Hare, obviously, you know, incredible director in early 2018 and, and the, the, the team got assembled and worked out in New York. We always planned for it to come out during a global pandemic. That was always the goal. <laughs> but, um, you know, there were lots of ups, downs, in between stress, successes, victories, losses, all kinds of things that marked the process. But, you know, I remember the first, very first cut of the first episode that I saw. And I, I just, the thing that always stuck out was like, that I was like, that's going to be the thing is, you know, the device of showing Michael on the iPad, which again, that was not a plan. I mean, it was planned in when we did second interviews and third interview, but it was really, I think the, in the first interview with Michael, I think Jason may have just even shown it to him on like his iPhone. I don't think it was there and we didn't have that much stuff to respond to. And, you know, there's lots of great moments, obviously, in the making of it and, and all that. But it was, you know, it was it was a big, big endeavor. You talk about responsibility, you know, I mean, this was a big thing. And so, you know, to be a part of it, and it was a big team effort, um, you know, it was obviously it's the project of a lifetime. Um, it was a long slog. Um, and that's not even, you know, counting the pandemic and cutting the guys cutting in New York. Uh, you know, remotely for while the show's airing. It is not a lie. Like when the shows started airing, eight episodes were done, but episodes nine and 10 were absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so it was a crazy race. I was able to go to a couple of interviews. My, you know, big highlight for me was the Steve Kerr interview. You know, that, that interview took place on a Saturday morning in New York. And it was actually the same morning, if you remember, there was an awful uh, sh gunman shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, Tree of Life uh, synagogue thing. It's that same morning. And Jake Rogal, fantastic human, great producer, was you know Jason's right-hand guy on the project from Pittsburgh, grew up at the going to that synagogue. And so that was a really emotional kind of like layer. And Steve Kerr being Steve Kerr, like he was impacted by it that morning. And I think in a weird way, maybe that's why his interview, I mean, I think his interview would have been fantastic. And Jason was like unbelievably great with him. It was a very, very powerful interview. And there's like, you can, you know, when you're doing this kind of thing, you can hear it in the film. You know, Steve Kerr speaks in perfect sentences and he perf gives perfect inflections and he gives that perfect transition from that story to this story and remembers things in perfect detail and gives the pregnant pause. Like, it's just so great. And so um, that was really, really a highlight um, for me in terms of like some of the content. We know how perfect that the project turned out to be, but pull back the curtain for us a little bit and tell us a challenge, a low point, something well, I think that it's wasn't always perfect in this process. Look, there's a lot of things. I mean, there's the nature of the project makes it challenging. A, it's Michael Jordan. B, you have not just us as the production company. I mean, just think about this from Jason and the editors and the producers' perspective. You're serving the production company. You're serving there's Michael Jordan's people. And just to be clear, like they did not have final cut. They were great in many ways in terms of facilitating interviews and making that process, making introductions and things like that. But, you know, they have a job to do. So you got one team voices from Jordan, then you got ESPN, then you got Netflix, then you got NBA, all of whom have different ideas of what is good. So that's very, very challenging. You know, four sets of notes and cons literally just figuring out a process for reviewing notes. <laughs> so that was hard. Music was hard because it's a very subjective thing. And it's, you know, it's sort of ironic that the music ended up being 
you know, such a celebrated part, which it deserved to be, but it was a very contentious thing because people have different tastes of how much pop music and, and how recognizable should it be and what's the mood and da 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 da, you know, and the score and what should the energy be. And, you know, that stuff changes so much with like a little timing edit and a little this. And so that was challenging. And budget stuff is challenging. So, I mean, all of it honestly said is is all of those things you got a lot of chefs in the kitchen uh you got a huge topic i would say actually interestingly the parts that you would think oh was that really contentious like you know the content stuff that i think really sticks out and why why i'm particularly proud of the project is like it's not this all whitewashing of michael jordan i mean i i I challenge you to watch that show and think like oh michael jordan's just this wonderful guy i mean i think he comes across as complicated and very Difficult in many ways, champion, committed, you know, one one of a kind, absolutely, but in many ways, kind of hard to like, which I think is why it's, it's so incredible that the project works because you're both you're sympathetic to him and you're like afraid of him. I think that that part was really, really well done. And um, so it was, you know, sure, there it was had a lot of Michael in it, but, you know, wasn't this just like everything was hunky dory, easy ride. I mean, I think that was the kernel that really was cool for people was like in some ways they were even though they were the bulls, they were, there was like individual stories within them. They were kind of underdogs, right? Like Jordan had this thing where he always had to feel and prove himself. Pippin, Kerr, Phil, Rodman, you know, all of these. And, you know, then there's like Jerry Krause constantly like trying to get his credit, you know? And so those are the things. I, I agree. Really I, I thought, yeah, I, I agree. I, I thought he was very authentic for having a piece of the film or as executive producer. Sometimes those things can come off not sincere not authentic and i thought he was very authentic well yeah he came to play i mean michael came to play in his interview and so he was michael jordan you know and and look one of the things that was a fear it certainly was for me is like you know michael jordan isn't he kind of boring in interviews like you know he's a little bit sterile and like he was so not and just you know seeing him swear seeing him go there like that alone was awesome you know and so even if you don't know anything, I, mean, I think, look, the, the part that is very gratifying is obviously the global response. And some of that had to do with the pandemic and, you know, people wanted to see something to celebrate. But I think that the fact that so many people, whether it's my wife, my mom, you know, people who have no interest in basketball, people watching it with their kids, you know, to sort of introduce them. That part is very gratifying that they could take something. And, you know, one of the great moments in the show, there's many, I have a lot of, but, but you know, end of episode seven, I think episode seven is the best episode. And it's the one that, you know, it, it includes the part about Michael's father passing away, the murder, the gambling, this comeback, and it ends with that wonderful sort of ramp up where Michael really gets emotional about he never asked anyone to do anything he wouldn't do. You know, that happened, that moment, that moment of the interview in real time happened within, I think, the first hour of the first interview with Michael. So like, you know, that set the, the bar pretty high. Like he was able to get to that kind of heightened emotion that early, it was like, ooh, he's ready to play. <laughs> you know, so that was really cool. I tell you what, you have worked on some great films, and and we appreciate you talking to us about three of them today. Now we're going to transition to our last act, which is just quick, some quick hitters for you. This first question may not be that quick, but as a person yourself that went from a reporter, someone like Mina Combs that went from a reporter to crossing over to the business side what is your advice to other young people young reporters that want to be like you yeah i mean i think look being able to write and to communicate in writing is important whatever job you do and i think you know it look for me it was a relatively seamless transition because i think i was really 
interested in the video, the, vi the visual component to it and telling stories that way. And I was a fan of the medium. I think a lot of reporters are like, I don't know how to do anything else. You know, and it's like, yeah, you can. Like writing a treatment for a documentary is not that much different than writing. Honestly, the Wall Street Journal, we had to do story proposals. If you wanted to do a page one story, you had to make a proposal to an editor you know, in a page, right? You know, we, we, there's a term one pager for like a treatment, like it's not that much different. You know, you have to convince someone, whether it's a network executive, whether it's an executive producer, whether it's someone that like, here's why the story is interesting and why it demands your attention. It's just not that much different from a newspaper reporter when you have to like sell it, or I was a freelance writer, you have to sell it to an idea to someone. So that wasn't that big a leap for me. Um, you know, and so I, I would say, look, just thinking broadly about the business like it's not there's ways especially now like you know when i was when i was growing up which doesn't sound old but like there really weren't that many ways you work for a network or you work for a team you know and now there's all sorts of ways that you can you don't need some of those traditional structures to get your content out there and so you know if you can like yes if you want to tweet tweet if you want to blog blog if you want to shoot shoot and just do it because i think it's much easier in a way to find an audience now than, than it used to be where you really needed, you know, a quote unquote mainstream media outlet. Last one for me, you're embarking on a new venture with Skydance Media. Talk to us about that. Yeah, very exciting. Hot off the presses. Um, literally this month, I uh, I left MSM. Wonderful, wonderful time there. Um, very exciting opportunity to launch a sports division for Skydance Media. So I'll be the president of Skydance Sports. Um, I am the president of Skydance Sports at, at Skydance Media. And so Skydance, for those who don't know, is the number one, or if not the number one, one of the top sort of independent film and television studios in the world. You know, it's a company that's overseen by David Ellison, who's Larry, son of Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle. And they started, you know, as a, a very small outfit, you know, financing films for Paramount. And now they've grown into, you know, a really impressive, incredible studio across scripted film, television. They launched an animation division a couple of years ago that's run by John Lasseter, founder of Pixar, new media, video games, and now sports. Um, and so um, sort of why now for, for Skydance is, you know, they have all this incredible capability and momentum in the scripted marketplace, you know, little franchises like Top Gun and Mission Impossible and Jack Ryan and Jack Reacher and launching a new show on Apple this week, uh, Foundation. One of the investors in Skydance, an entity called Redbird Capital, which, you know, is a very aggressive sports and media investor. They've got stakes in the Boston Red Sox and Liverpool and the Wasserman Media Group and a French soccer team and an Indian cricket team and all kinds of connectivity in the sports world. And was sort of like, hey, you know, here you have on one hand this entity with a lot of connectivity in the sports marketplace and then on the other hand Skydance like a really premium premier studio can we marry these and sort of create a sports division and also the Ellison family has you know they own the Indian Wells tennis tournament in uh on the ATP tour and the women's tour and they own a America's Cup team so there are a lot of big fans of, of sports in the, in the company so it's a really unique opportunity and, and obviously like super exciting it's a little sad to leave you know MSM and Mike but it's a really great opportunity to launch something um and so hope to see you here again in a year with, with other projects to talk about best of luck to you in your endeavor we really appreciate your time I encourage everyone to go see some of the docs we talked about especially the other dream team that was really well done it doesn't get enough credit so thank you very <laughs> much Mike we appreciate that Hey, from your mouth to God's ears, I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. A big thank you to John Weinbach for giving us all those great stories and best of luck in his new venture with Skydance Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you do, we'll give you a big shout out. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Beyond the Lens. And that's a wrap. <laughs>